And what someone told me was uh, two words, and they said, someone's waiting. There's someone waiting to hear your story. There's someone waiting to know that they're not alone. They're not the only one that's going through what you went through. There's someone waiting to know that there is light on the other side of this darkness. And there's someone waiting to know, how do I get there? So if by sharing your story can do that for someone, even if it's one person, that's all that matters. Welcome back to the Pay It Forward podcast. I am one of your hosts, Austin Seward, along with my co-host, Keegan Walls. And today we have on the podcast, Jamie Dahl. Uh, Jamie is a speaker, author, wife, mother, um, fifth generation member of the Dahl family, which has been a staple to uh, the lacrosse community for a very long time. Um, passionate about helping women, helping women through motherhood, through marriage, through um, trials and tribulations through their life. So um, this message will be mainly geared towards more for women probably um, and really sharing the power of sharing your story and being vulnerable enough to share your story to make an impact on others. So thank you for being here today, Jamie. We're excited to dive into your story. Thank you. Well, I really appreciate you having me here today and Absolutely. letting me share my story. Thank you. So tell us more about what, what you're doing now. I know you have a book. Tell us a little bit about that and what you're up to now. Yes. Uh, so the, the book is about uh, my story with breast cancer. I am a breast cancer survivor, and I really felt that there were so many women out there that were struggling through the same things that I was going through and felt like the best way that I could help them and answer a lot of the questions that I kept getting was to put everything down into a story and to just share it that way. And so that has been uh, just a really wonderful way to use um, a really difficult time in my life to help someone else. Uh, and, and currently, other things that I'm, I guess, doing right now is, like you mentioned, I'm, uh, I'm a wife and I'm a mom. That's my number one job. That's what I love to do and where I feel very called uh, right now in this season of my life. Uh, I'm also busy as a um, community volunteer and I work a lot in the community through other uh, local nonprofits and uh, through Lacrosse Community Foundation. I served on the board for about 10 years and uh, was the chair of the grants committee for about three years. Uh, so really just trying to be involved with my community, helping my family, uh, being a wife and a mom, and then sharing my story through my book and other speaking engagements uh, around the community. Awesome. Well, we're excited to hear your story today. Thank so you. why don't you take us back to the beginning of that story? I know you spent some time in New York as a professional dancer? Yes, I did. Uh, so yeah, I grew, grew up here in, in the lacrosse area, but then I moved away and I uh, was always passionate about dance. It was something that I did growing up. I honestly never thought that it would be something that I would do as a career. I always thought I have to go go to school and get a real job. and uh, But I, it was something I could not get away from and felt still very called to do even after I graduated college. And so I, I moved out to um, or actually, before I moved to New York, I auditioned for uh, a backup dancer, to be a backup dancer for a contemporary Christian artist at the time. Uh, it was back in the 90s, and his name was Carmen. He was uh, kind of kind of big back then if you're a 90s Christian music person. <laughs> and uh, I, I, I got the job in, uh, first in about five of his music videos and then went on tour with him for a little over a year. And it was wonderful. It, uh, we were, it was a bus and truck tour, so we traveled all over the country with... Uh, six semi-trucks and four tour buses and played uh, big arenas all over the country. And and then after that, uh, moved to New York City 
and studied there. I was on scholarship at Steps on Broadway and um, worked there at the at the studio, took classes, auditioned for shows and things that would come through town. And uh, and then I also, to pay my bills, I, um, I was a shoe model. So great. <laughs> <laughs> it was actually a great job. And that was how I paid my bills so I could uh, afford to live in New York. And and uh, yeah, and then I moved uh, from New York City out to Los Angeles, and I worked in the fashion industry, actually out there, um, and uh, worked with um, a, a stylist. So we would dress um, artists for their video shoots and award shows and photo shoots. Uh, so still in the entertainment industry, but just a little different side of it. And uh, so I was still able to kind of be in that world that I was passionate about, uh, but just in a different, a different way. Yeah. You know. were, were there any like well-known artists or people that you got to work with in the fashion industry out in L.A.? Yeah, a lot of uh, Christian artists, actually. Okay. So we worked with B.B. and C.C. Winans. Um, mm-hmm. I actually, we worked with uh, uh, Brian McKnight and, yeah. um, gosh, let's see. Oh, Yolanda Adams was, uh, was a, a big one. She's a big gospel singer. And uh, yeah, so it was, it was really fun. Um, Rick James, um, a lot of some of the old, like, that's 80s, awesome. Like the Gap Band and, uh, yeah, worked with a lot of those those artists, and so that was fun. Very cool. Mm-hmm. What were some of the cooler venues that you guys performed at? Yeah, I think uh, probably the one of the most impressive venues for me at the time was uh, the uh, the Georgia Dome in Atlanta. Okay. I don't think it's standing anymore, but it was an enormous dome where the um, Atlanta Falcons played, and we had an audience of 65,000 people. And our, our stage was in the round, so you're looking around and it, you're just surrounded by thousands of people, and I, that was just impressive. I mean, to get to the stage, we had to ride in golf carts and because it was so big, mm. uh, but just amazing. So I think that was one of my favorite ones. Uh, although when I when I lived in New York, we uh, we performed at the MetLife Building um, on the Upper East Side on New Year's Eve, because uh, New York at the time did a um, something called First Night New York, where they would have all these uh, arts performances, whether mm-hmm. it was jazz or dance, you know, all over the city. And uh, so the company that I was in performed there and um, at the MetLife building on New Year's Eve, and that was that's, pretty wild. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. What, what was that like to, as a performer, to perform at that? I mean, that's the next, right? You grow up doing, like, especially around here, Viterbo and all these places, but the, I mean, the, the Georgia Dome, New York, like, I mean, what's that, like, adrenaline rush like when you're doing those big performances? Oh, it's it's incredible because, you know, especially when that is your passion and you're able to live it out on that type of a level, uh, it's such a blessing. And I think what I loved about especially working, you know, with Carmen is because it was a ministry, it was melding the two things that I love most. At the, it was my faith and dance at the time. Those were those are my passions. And so to be able to do those two things together at one time was just just incredible. And so then how long were you in New York and like L.A.? What was that time frame? Yes. So I I was on tour for about a year. I lived in New York for a little over a year. And then I was out in L.A. for two years. So probably around a span of four to five years total kind of in that industry. Very cool. And what was your, how did you land back in small town La Crosse, Wisconsin after this awesome journey? What brought you back to La Crosse? Yeah, I had, you know, I'd been gone for a total of 14 years at that point because um, then I I'd actually lived in Texas as well. And there was just something that was drawing me home. And I knew, you know, I'd done all these things that I was really excited about and, and proud of, uh, but my family was here. And it, there was just this strange pull to come back. And I'll be honest, I was a little terrified mm. <laughs> because it's coming back to a small town. I didn't have a plan. 
Uh, I was single. I didn't know what I was going to do. And I was a little scared about changing my lifestyle and coming back to the small community. But it is such an incredible community. And being close to my family was very important. And I'm so glad that I did because I can see even now as you look back the reasons why uh, it was time time to come home. So. Yeah, well, lacrosse is glad that you came back too. Cause, <laughs> yeah, not a lot of people are like, you know what? I'm in L.A. in New York. I, I think lacrosse. That's, I think like, that's where lacrosse, Wisconsin, I think, is calling my heart. It's calling right? me, yes. So, but yeah, very cool. Yeah. Um, so I know a big part of your story, and we'll get there, is your journey through breast cancer. Um, so at, at what point was that in your journey? And maybe walk us through what that was like. Yes. So in 2017, uh, so I had been back home at this point for probably about 12 years. Okay. Uh, I was married. I met my husband, and we had two daughters. At the time, they were six and eight years old. And life was great. You know, I think like many, many people, life is good. You're, you're doing all the things. You're the busy mom or your husband, working, running around. And that was my life. And I loved it. And it was great. And there was really nothing that I could see that was going to stop stop that. And then all of a sudden, in 2017, I felt a lump in my breast. And I remember mentioning it to my husband. And at the time, I just thought, oh, I'm sure it's nothing. You know, it's, it's just body changes, you know, nothing. And, you know, of course, like most women do, they put it off. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and honestly, I just kind of felt, well, I'm too busy to really handle something like this right now. So I'm, I'm just going to let it go. But then a few months later, uh, a friend had been diagnosed with breast cancer. And I, it really, it, it just it's kind of put up the red flags. I thought, okay, I need to get this checked out. And so I, I went into uh, to my doctor. And before I knew it, I found myself in an ultrasound room, getting an ultrasound, and still even in complete denial. I mean, I remember laying on the table thinking, okay, after this, I need to run to Target, and then I have to go do this. And then the doctor stopped me, and she said, um, Jamie, I want you to take a look at something. And I sat up, and I turned and looked behind me and looked at the screen, the ultrasound screen, and she pointed to this really small little white mass, and she said, I don't know what this is. I knew she knew what it was. Mm-hmm. But that was her way of saying that we needed to check this out. And so all of a sudden, the door flew open. Nurses were coming in with instruments, getting ready to do a biopsy. I couldn't even call my husband and tell him what was going on because my phone was locked in a locker. Mm-hmm. And I was terrified, absolutely terrified. So we did the biopsy. And then I had to wait four days to get the results, which was probably one of the most excruciating four days of my life. And then I got the phone call at four o'clock on a Monday from the doctor, and they said, Jamie, you have cancer. And it's just in an instant, your life just stops on a dime. You know, all those things that, that you thought you had to do or that were so important are all of a sudden not important at all. And so I was diagnosed with a very aggressive form of breast cancer that required uh, chemotherapy, four rounds of it every every 21 days. And it just, it wreaked havoc on my body. I mean, all the things that you can imagine would happen, you know, were with chemo happened. I, I lost my hair. Um, my, my energy was completely drained. Um, just, I was a shell, really, of myself. And then after those uh, four rounds, then I had a, a double mastectomy, which is where all of the breast tissue is removed from both the breasts. And I had reconstruction at that point um, with silicone implants. And uh, and then my life was supposed to just go on. Mm-hmm. And I think that's one of the things that's really difficult for cancer survivors 
as you go through all of this, you just power through this difficult, you know, the treatments and all the things you're going through. And then when it's, you know, air quotes all over, you're just left picking up the pieces Mm -hmm. and everyone thinks, oh, it's okay. You can go on with your life, but you don't. You have so much physical recovery, mental recovery to do. And it takes, you know, it took me a good year to physically even feel like myself again, Mm -hmm. uh, let alone mentally feel like I was somewhat back on track. Um, So that's really, really kind of the story of my breast cancer journey. Uh, And really my faith is what got me through it. Yeah. By far. Yeah. I can relate to that a lot. My, my wife was diagnosed with breast cancer, Mm. uh, probably two years ago now, three years ago. And like hearing you talk about the waiting game of getting the biopsy results and like knowing that moment, like that's, I can relate to that and vividly remember where we were and hearing the C word. And, um, yeah, that's traumatic for a lot of people to hear that. Even, even not knowing the extent of what happened, but you just hear that word and like, um, yeah, that's, uh, that's not a good place to be, not a good thing to hear. So, It sounds like your faith was kind of the core of who you were before that. Mm-hmm. Was there ever a time that you questioned that during this journey? Or was that always your rock, your foundation through this? Yeah, that was always my rock. However, I will say that there were definitely times when I didn't have the energy to even pray about pray for myself. I, I just, I didn't have the desire to or the energy to because I was just so exhausted. Uh, and in those moments, those were the times when I really relied on friends, you know, to hold, literally hold up my hands and, you know, pray for me. Uh, so yeah, there were definitely moments where it feels a little rocky, but it was so, it was actually very beautiful because, because I was at such a low place that I had nowhere to go. I couldn't control what was happening yeah. to myself. I was completely out of control. And when you are completely out of control, that is when you realize how much you need to rely on the Lord and rely on God to to help you through those times and how much you need him. And that's when he shows up in these beautiful ways. And I felt more connected and more loved by the Lord in that moment when I was going through that difficult time than I ever had in my entire life. Mm. And so for that, I'm so grateful because I had never experienced that kind of of love and faithfulness before because I had never had a reason to. Yeah. And so I, I look back and feel grateful yeah. for that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we just got done having a podcast with Shane and like coming from a drastic place of not knowing God and then knowing God and um, I... Throughout going through that, I feel like sometimes if you do know God, um, it's sometimes it just gets comfortable. You know what I mean? As if we're Christians for a long period of time and we don't know what the other side looks like. We've always been Christians. Like sometimes you just kind of get comfortable through that. And not to say that like cancer is not from God, but he can use those situations to bring you back closer to him. Absolutely. um, Yes. Yeah, that's an awesome part of that. What were some of the other lessons that you've learned throughout that journey? Yeah, so, and I love that question because I think that right there is just a key. You know, when you go through something difficult, being able to look at it and say, what can I learn from this? Versus just, oh, I'm just suffering. And suffering is, is you know, we all go through some area of suffering in our life. Uh, but to be able to say, what can I learn from this? 
is absolutely essential. And so, you know, I think a couple of the big points that I really took from it was um, one was just the importance of being still. You know, I think that people don't take the time to be still in their lives. You know, this our culture really is always saying, hey, what are you doing? Are you, you know, are you busy? Are you productive? Are you hustling? You know, all the things. But yet there's such power in being still. And I was forced to be, to be still. I felt like I'd been hit by a Mack truck and then run over three times and you know, thrown in a, in a gully. And I had to just literally sit on my porch and watch the birds because I couldn't do anything else. But because of that, God really used that time to pull some things out that I needed to work on, really pull some weeds. There was some pride there I needed to face. Uh, and then I could really hear his voice better because I was quiet. I mean, you think about when you're talking, you're not listening, mm-hmm. right? Because you're talking. So when you're quiet, you can hear more. When you're moving, you're not receiving. So being able to be still was just a huge lesson for me. In fact, when I was talking about this with my husband a long time ago, I was preparing for a, a, um, a talk I was giving, and I was telling him about this concept of being still, and he's like, well, yeah, it's like a, it's like a Toyota Prius. <laughs> okay, really? <laughs> How is that like a Toyota Prius, my, right. my car <laughs> right. husband you know, in the automotive industry? And he said, well, you know, it's, it's a hybrid vehicle, and hybrid vehicles uh, run on you know, either electric or gas and then a battery, and, that's, and they use something called um, regenerative braking. So whenever you put your foot on the brake, it, it captures that kinetic energy and recharges the battery. So I said, so, okay, so when you put your foot on the brake, it gives you more energy. It's like, yeah. It's like, brilliant. Absolutely. <laughs> it's like a Toyota Prius. Yeah. So, you know, are we putting our foot on the brake enough? in our lives. I think that's so important. Um, and then I think the other big lesson I learned is just how to be resilient. You know, when you go through a difficult time, because like I said, we're all going to go through trials. Uh, that's a given. But are you going to be able to go just go through that trial and make it through that trial? Or are you going to be able to be resilient and snap back maybe even better than you were before that trial? So I think when what that looked like for me was really four stages that I saw myself go through in that whole process. Once I was able to get through it and look back on it, um, I saw that you know the first stage was of course the trial. It's the, it's the junk that you're going through. It's whatever that is, and that can be cancer, it could be financial issues, it could be divorce, it could be death. Anything is a trial, right? Mm-hmm. That's you're just in survival mode at that point. But then the next phase that I saw myself go into was really that perseverance phase. And that's a phase where you just have to keep going. And, you know, so the practical things that I did just to keep going is you just got to move. And so whether that was just getting up one morning and actually putting on clothes that weren't pajamas or putting on some makeup and making, making myself feel a little bit more like myself, um, just moving, even if it's just a little bit, don't stop, just move, keep going. Uh, and having a forward-thinking mindset, always looking towards the future, uh, something that I did a lot when I was going through um, through my trial was I would m- mentally picture myself a year from then, and I was like, okay, I would think, okay, well, what am I gonna, what am I gonna be doing? How am I gonna look? Um, I'm gonna be sitting in a pool or at a pool with my kids, healthy, and my hair is gonna start growing back, and I'm gonna be sipping an iced tea. I mean, I would visually picture myself a year from where I was because what that did is it it gave me 
hope knowing I'm going to make it. Mm-hmm. I'm telling myself I'm going to make that. I'm going to make it out of this. Um, so keeping that forward thinking mindset really helped me to persevere. And then the next stage that I saw myself go through was um, the character phase of it really grows your character. Like I mentioned before, there were areas that were revealed that needed some work. It's like when you refine gold, you have to heat it up to a really mm-hmm. hot temperature for all those impurities to get to the top. And they, they skim off those impurities, heat it up again to get a pure um, sample of gold. And so when you're getting, going through trial, you're getting heated up. Your life is getting put over the fire and some stuff starts to rise to the top. So it's that character growth and being able to realize, okay, I needed to work on this. I needed to work on that. Yeah, I had a little too much focus on this and really learning from that. And then the last piece um, was really this this hope piece. Once I got through all of that, I saw the value in taking my story and doing something good with it, not just burying it and putting it under, you know, under a carpet or on a shelf somewhere. But how can I use this for good? Because, you know, God says he'll take all things and turn them for good for those who love him are called according to his purpose. So how can I take this and help someone else? And what that does is it takes your pain and turns it into purpose. Hmm. And that is beautiful. And it gives you not only a way to heal from the own the trauma that you've been through, but it gives you, um, it gives you just an overwhelming sense of um, gratitude that I can now use this to help someone else. Yeah. So, so going back just a little bit to, to like your second point, mm-hmm. like the, the impurities and the things that are, that, that you have to wipe away, like what were some things in that, right? Because so often in, until we're faced with that challenge, mm-hmm. we don't even understand maybe where we have some like idols or where I've put my identity, like yes. in the midst of that, right? Not being your full strength, like losing your hair, not being able to like fully be there, right? Like you said, your 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 family, like being a wife and a mom, like that's what you love. Obviously, that's going to change going through like chemotherapy and not having that energy. Mm-hmm. What were some of those things that maybe like fell off due to the circumstances that were good, right? Like that God's like you got to set those bags down, not and, and you can't bring them with you on the, on the next step. Yes. What were some things that you yes. kind of had to like leave off? Right. I think control, I think there was a sense of control that I can do it all myself. And, you know, I think a lot of times women in particular have that that mindset, like that they have to do it all themselves. They, you know, they've got to run the ship essentially and not take any help. Mm-hmm. And I think that was one area that I I had no control. I, I couldn't, like you said, I, I couldn't take care of my family. Um, I had to just literally take care of myself and be selfish and take care of myself at that moment, which was hard for me to do. But what it did is it showed me the importance of relying on others and letting other people help you and asking for help. And I think within that, when people don't ask for help, there's there's a pride issue mm-hmm. because they're thinking, I can do it myself. I don't need help. But by not allowing people to help you or asking for help, not only are you exerting this you know, control but you're not allowing other people to use their gifts and their talents to feel like a blessing to you. And so I think that was a big one is just letting go of the control of always having yeah. to have to do it myself. Um, and then, like I've mentioned a couple of times, just the pride aspect, even just in my physical appearance. Um, you know, I'd, I felt pretty good that I, 
I looked kind of decent for my age at the time. And But then when you look in the mirror and you see a bald woman staring back at you with sunken eyes and just a shell of herself, and you don't feel beautiful, you feel just horrible, not attractive. Um, and I think there was, you know, God was kind of shining a little light on, you know, do you find your identity in the way that you look or in who I've made you to be? Mm. And that was a really, a really big moment too. Yeah. For me. That's beautiful. Thank you. And I think uh, oftentimes you don't need to have a trial to go through those things. Like you can, mm-hmm. you were talking before about creating space and time. Like you can create that in your life without having to go through that. Absolutely. Um, and be proactive in that. I think of when you're talking about the four lessons you've learned through that, I think of like working out, like something good that you know you should be doing for your health and your body. With step one, like you, you're going, it's going to suck when you start. If you're overweight and you're getting back in the gym, it's going to suck. Yeah. You're going to have to persevere for a period of time before you start seeing any results. And it's going to suck. And sometimes you just got to show up and it's not going to feel make you feel great all the time. But as you continue going through that, you learn some lessons that I shouldn't be eating this or eating that and then helping others do the same. So I think that's so applicable to anything and it, you don't necessarily have to endure a trial that's out of your control. Um, you can use those lessons and apply it to just something that's hard in general that you know you should be doing. So Absolutely. And I know that we've talked about this before as well in preparing for this as you've recently developed a breast implant illness as i say that correct yes i know it's kind um, of a mouthful <laughs> okay T- tell us more about now now that journey and some of the lessons that you've learned through that yes uh so um and yeah so about four years after going through all of that you know i thought i was okay i'm done i'm yeah. I'm, I'm moving on life is life is good and then and then i started having these really strange symptoms uh, i had this constant dull headache in the back of my head uh, I had extreme dry eyes. Uh, I had heart palpitations, difficulty breathing, uh, just fuzzy, like brain fog. I'd get dizzy. And I just thought, what in the world? What is going on? And so a few things started just kind of pop up that made me start to think a little bit about breast implant illness because I had had these implants um, put in for my my reconstruction. And I started talking to some other women, started doing some research. And I really just felt like something is not right. And so I, um, I, I brought it up to a physician that I, I see who's a functional medicine doctor. And, and he said, well, let's just run some tests and just see. And so he ran some heavy metal tests. And sure enough, I was high on some certain heavy metals. Um, and he said, well, all of these are potentially used in breast implants. And I remember my husband came to that, that particular appointment with me, and we walked out of the appointment. And I said, well, what do we do? And he said, you need to get those out. Mm-hmm. And I said, yep, I need to get them out. And it was devastating because, yeah. you know, here I just been through the ringer. I'm like, really? I, now I got to go through this on like, another surgery, another like body disfigurement, like really. But I just, I knew that's what it was. And so, um, so I had them removed and uh, it's called an explant. And, um, it, I was left because I'd already had a double mastectomy. All the breast tissue was gone, so there was nothing left. And so they did what's called an aesthetic flat closure, uh, which just means that pretty much everything is gone. And so uh, for lack of a better way to describe it, my front looks like my back with uh, two eight-inch scars from my sternum to underneath my arms. And uh, it was, you know, there were so many mixed feelings with yeah. that. I mean, I was 
thrilled to have it done um, and so glad I did because when the doctor did the, um, the procedure, they found that one of the implants was grossly ruptured mm. and broken open and was leaking um, the contents you know, mm. into my body. And so uh, I felt um, so relieved to have it done. I felt like my life had been saved twice now. Mm. And, um, but you're left again with this disfigurement uh, and essentially being a double amputee twice mm-hmm. um, with the same body parts and it's it's a tough it's a tough thing to handle especially as a woman it's very much you know your femininity is, mm-hmm. it's definitely a part of that but I didn't really care mm-hmm. too much uh, about it because I knew that this was saving my life and um, and it's not about it really again was one more lesson that it's not about our external appearance uh, it's about what's inside and that that's what's most important right. <laughs> Well, let's shift gears a little bit, Jamie. I know um, you and your husband, Andrew, founded the local adult teen challenge um, organization, which I support and is an awesome, awesome organization here locally. Tell us how that came to be and where did that come from? Yeah, well, thank you for your, for your yeah. support with that. I really appreciate it. So Adult and Teen Challenge is um, is a national organization and it's, uh, it's an organization that helps um, people who are struggling with addictions. So where that came from is uh, my husband is uh, about 18 years sober, and he um, is very comfortable with me talking about it. He talks about it all the time. And so that was you know, definitely part of his, his story. Uh, and then we also lost his mother about a month after we were married. Uh, she struggled with, um, with addiction as well. And one of the things that she asked that he and I do uh, is to help women specifically that are struggling with addiction. And at the time, we didn't really know what that looked like. And, and we're just, both he and the rest of the family were just reeling from this tragic uh, loss of his mother. So they, um, his, my husband and his brothers started a foundation to just help local organizations dealing with addiction. Uh, but then a few years later, we started to hear more about this organization called the Dalton Teen Challenge. And uh, my husband looked into it. It's a faith-based uh, residential treatment center. And he really liked what he saw. It had been around since the 1960s. Uh, he's, a, he's a business guy, so he likes the, the return on investment. And, <laughs> and it has a, um, about a 78% success rate if a mm. client stays within the program, which is almost unheard of in the addiction world. And so uh, he's like, all right, this is, this is it. And so he just got to work putting together a business plan, talking with a lot of other adult and teen challenges um, in areas near us getting a lot of information, and we um, hired on an incredible executive director and his wife, uh, Kevin and Jess Shaler, mm-hmm. and they um, we opened it. We're going on our fifth year, so we opened in 2019, and it's just been a, a wonderful opportunity to um, really serve women in this community and beyond uh, who are struggling with addiction. Awesome. And how many people have, or how many women have co- come through that already in the five years? Yes, yeah, so we've had over 100 women come through our program. Wow. Uh, so it's it's been amazing, and yeah, every story is just more incredible than the next. And uh, yeah, we're just so honored to be able to just watch God work in this, in, within this organization and just see lives completely changed. It's, yeah. uh, it's beautiful. So for women that are, that are struggling with addiction, are a lot of those people local or are there a bunch of adult teen challenges around our area and people drive for a while to get to a certain center or how does that work? Right. So there's uh, over 200, I think we're 271. I have to correct make sure if that's correct or not, but uh, center in the United States. So there's, uh, we serve both local 
local women. And then there's, we've had people from as far as Las, um, Las Vegas come yeah. to us as well. Uh, so there, there are centers all over. Uh, some people like to be, get out of the community that they're in, uh, if that's a, kind of a trigger for them, uh, and go to one that's a little bit further away. Uh, but we have a lot of local uh, local clients have come to us, which is great. We have a lot of clients that have come from other uh, communities and then have gotten sober and gotten their lives together and want to stay here because yeah. it's such a great community and because we have a great support system for them. So it's a little mix of both. Wow. Yeah. How have you been able to use your story in relating to some of the women that are going through these trials right now through that organization? Yes. Uh, it's... You know, I think that pain is pain, no matter what you've gone through. And so I don't have a history of addiction. It's not something that uh, that I have experienced personally. But I have gone through a difficult time where I have felt my lowest. I've been at my bottom. And so when I interact and, and spend time with these women, uh, I might not be able to relate to exactly what they've been through. But I can say, hey, I understand what it feels like to feel alone, to feel despair, to feel like there's no hope. Um, and so I, I get that and I can, but here's how God walked me through it. Here's how I know he can walk you through this too. And so it gives me a little, I like, I like to say a little street cred because mm -hmm. I'm, I'm not coming in there like, oh, everything's great. For sure. You know, like, I've been through some, through some stuff too. And, uh, and I, so I like that and I appreciate my trials for that reason that I can have something to offer as yeah. well. Mm -hmm. I, we're talking about sharing your story, and I just think back. I can't remember the gal's name. Um, went through the program um, for Adult Teen Challenge, and she shared her testimony at Leading with Power mm -hmm. in front of a group of 200 guys. Yes. And I don't think there was a dry eye in that room. Mm -hmm. And for somebody to be bold enough to share their story through what they went through, a, a lady to share it in front of a group of that many men it takes so much courage. So. Mm -hmm. Um, I was inspired through listening to her story. I can't remember her name. Um, I've met her many times, but um, awesome organization doing awesome things. So is that, I know uh, Adult Teen Challenge is not only for women. It is in this area, but there are other programs that are for men as well? Correct. Okay. Yes. There's men's programs. There's teen programs. There's uh, mother and children programs. Uh, so, and mm. th there are other areas you know, near us that have, have some of those programs, Um Ours, like I said, is mostly it's just women. Right yeah. Now, so. And what's the vision long term for that organization here? Yeah, I mean, we'd love to, you know, would love to continue to grow it. Uh, there's such a need. I mean, I mean, it's yeah. one of the biggest problems that we see, I know, in our community and yeah. multiple communities all over the country. So, uh, we would love to continue continue to grow that, um, be able to serve more women. Uh, so yeah, we're just we're excited just to see. What how does that happen? Like, how can help people help support that and make that happen? Because I've talked with Kevin, and like they're always full, and there's a waiting list of ladies that want to be a part of the program. How what does what does the program need to grow? Yes, uh, well, the cr program is completely um, funded by donations. Uh, we don't get any government funding whatsoever, so it is completely donation based, and we don't require our clients to pay for the program. Obviously, if they can in any way, that's great, but we don't require that because we never want to turn anyone away from, from the inability to pay. Mm -hmm. uh, so donations are always welcome. Uh, they're, they can go right to the website, uh, which is atcww.org, uh, and donate straight on our website. Uh, all of those, money, those monies are going directly to literally saving lives. Mm. Uh, lives have been 
saved. And many of the women will say that, that they would not be here today if it wasn't for this program. Yeah. Awesome. Would encourage everybody to go and support that organization for sure. So um, let's shift gears a little bit again and talk more about Doll Automotive. And obviously, like I said, a community staple has done so much for the community, been around like there's a museum, Doll Museum, right, to share the history um, of the business, of the family. So what is it like being a part of the fifth generation of the Doll family? And Andrew, your husband is the president and CEO. Um, So what is it like being the spouse of somebody who is in that position? And how do you, there's a lot of questions wrapped up. There's a lot of questions there. I'm like, okay, I got to remember all these. (laughs) Yeah. But how, just share share with us a little bit about that experience. And yeah, it's, you know, first of all, it's such an honor to be a part of this wonderful family. And, uh, it, the business has been around since 1911, and uh, so Andrew and his brothers are fifth-generation uh, auto dealers. We're the eighth oldest Ford dealer in the country, and uh, it's just, it's so, it's such a neat um, business, and Andrew says it all the time that he's so grateful that his forefathers thought to get into the automotive industry uh, because it's such an essential business, and, you know, our, um, and I don't want to take any of his thunder away, but it, it's, you know, our um vision is to just to keep people moving. And mm-hmm. that's so important. You think of everyone's lives. You need to take a family member to the hospital. You need to get to the grocery store. We, you need to take your kids to school. I mean, that's what an automotive um, or, or what a vehicle does. And so being able to be that for the community and then be able to serve the community through our organization uh, and partner with nonprofits and be able to help is uh, truly an honor. And so being, you know, being married to Andrew is, is, it's a blessing. I just, I just love the guy. He's so great. <laughs> and, uh, and, but knowing, you know, when you ask about what it's like to get, you know, to marry um, someone in, in this business, uh, just funny story. So on our very first date, uh, we, our first date was um, Halloween. It was the only night that we had free. And uh, now Halloween is obviously October 31st, which is the last day of the month. And if you are in retail, you understand that it <laughs> goes by months, right? The, everything, the, um, uh, the number quotas. of cars, your yeah. quotas, they come yep. in by the end of the month. So, and he was working the sales desk at that time. And so I'm waiting for him to show up on our first date. And he's half hour late. He's an hour late. He's two hours late. And I thought, okay. And then he comes flying in, in to, up the door and so it's the last day of the month. I'm so sorry I couldn't leave. And so that was a little snippet into what my world mm. was going to be like, um, <laughs> just knowing that that's, that's the life of, um, of being in this business. But uh, what's great about it, though, is I get to watch firsthand um, his, uh, just his passion and the family's passion in general for, um, for people mm. and, and what they do. And, you know, I think one of the most... Um, important things that has been handed down from generation to generation is just that, that this is not about us. This business is not about about the Dahl family. It's about our family serving the community um, and the communities that have been so good to us. And um, that has just been ingrained in, in every generation and something that we feel very called to ingrain in the next generation uh, because it is really the core of, um, of who we are. Hmm. Yeah, that's great. What are some things that being the spouse of somebody who is the leader of a big organization, what are some things that um, you have to deal with being being that person, that go-to, that because a lot of times the, the leader of the organization doesn't have many people to go to, right? So they default to their spouse, their family, 
Um, so what's it? What are some things you have to deal with in that? Uh, just being a support for him, hundred uh, percent is the most important thing, and I think he would say that too. Is you know we're really a team, and uh, he is such an amazing support for me and the things that I'm involved in, and I'm really a sounding board for him too. When he comes home and just needs to talk through something at work, or hey, what do you think about this X Y Z, whatever that is, mm-hmm. uh, just giving being able to give him my my thoughts and just have that honest um, that honest opinion. And just to talk through things and pray through things uh, is really important to him and in a way that I feel um, that I can really serve him as um, you know, as my husband. Uh, one of the things that we do every day is uh, we have uh, a standing date at 6.20 a.m. And that is our prayer time every morning. And, you know, we get up and we go and do our own quiet times. And then we meet at 6.20 and we do a quick check-in, you know, how are you doing? What's going on? in your life right now, what's going on in work, how can we pray, and then we pray together. Uh, we pray about family, we pray about the business, we pray um, for specific people or things. And and even if he's out of town, he'll call me at 620 and we have our prayer time over the phone. Right. Uh, and I think that um, has just been really great. Not only does it connect us as a couple, as a married couple, because ultimately that comes first, right? If you don't have a strong family unit, not only between the two of us, but between all the branches of the family, uh, then you don't have a good culture at work. Mm-hmm. So making sure that that's first and foremost uh, for me is, and for him is super important. And just knowing that, uh, I think for him, the comfort of knowing that I got the fa- the home stuff, <laughs> you know, I've, I've got the kids, mm-hmm. I'm running them, I'm doing all those things so that he can focus on uh, what God has called him to do has, uh, has been a very um, comforting thing, I mm-hmm. think, for him, for yeah. sure. He can't be two hours late to that one. He's no, no and no more. <laughs> Definitely not. So, so what are some other some other things going back to you, um, like business wise that you're currently involved in? Because don't you do some stuff with like makeup? Yeah, well, I was really involved with um, with Beauty Counter. It's yeah. a, um, a personal care product company, and I did that for about seven years. Uh, still involved with it. Uh, it's. What's interesting about it is, you know, I, at the time I learned a lot about uh, just toxic ingredients in um, in certain products that we use on our on our bodies uh, before I was diagnosed with breast cancer, and I had learned all of these things that you know, one in eight women will be diagnosed with breast cancer in their lifetime, and uh, and then to all of a sudden be the one in eight was uh, just a little mind blowing. Uh, so grateful for that for all of that information that I had learned and the experience that I'd had um, with that. And working with with Beauty Counter, uh, and and I think a lot of that has really grown me more. Um, even just being able to, I think it was prepping me really for sharing my own story, because when I was really involved with that, I was sharing the story of um, of Beauty Counter and of the importance of what you put on your skin. And so it was almost a little bit of a training for what was going to be coming in my future that I didn't know. Uh, so yeah, that's that was definitely definitely something that. And so now about. sharing your story, mm-hmm. what's the impact you've seen lately of continuing to share that story? That the the impact of being able to be vulnerable, to be open, um, and like the impact of like individual lives. Like what are what are, what are some ways that you've seen the impact lately right. of sharing your story? Yes, uh, well, I think as it relates to when I wrote the book, uh, I think one of the most impactful messages that I got. Um, was a text that I got from a woman in Florida. A friend of mine had given her my book. I didn't even know this woman. 
Uh, but she sent me a text, and she was going through breast cancer at that time. And there's a chapter in my book uh, that goes kind of describes a time when I um, had to go into the emergency room um, because I was uh, the chemo had completely knocked out all my white blood cells, and I had a massive mm. infection. And so I had to be kind of sequestered in uh, the hospital room with antibiotics. And it was just, just a kind of a scary, scary time. And she sent me this text of in a picture of her holding my book open to that chapter in the hospital room. Mm. And she said, I am exactly where you were. And I'm reading, I just happened to be reading this chapter wow. at this moment. And thank you, because your story is giving me hope that I'm going to make it, that I'm going to mm. get out of here. So that was a big one. And, and then another time I was, um, was when I was doing a book signing at Barnes & Noble, and actually a gentleman came up to the table with my book, and he had tears in his eyes. And he said, I'm going through a financial crisis, and I read your story, and it has given me so much hope that I can get through what I'm going through, this trial that I'm experiencing right now. Mm. And he had things underlined and post-it notes, and that blew me away mm. there too because it just felt like, again, it doesn't matter if it's breast cancer or some other type of trial. Just being able to be willing to share that can really impact people's lives. Yeah. Yeah, storytelling is just incredible, and that's part of the mission here and why we're so thankful that you've come on to, to share your story is, man, people are, are truly and deeply impacted and motivated and encouraged by people's stories, mm -hmm. even if it doesn't line up, right? Because sometimes I think we think that, like, if they haven't gone through exactly what I, well, how can my story help? Well, right. how can my story help? And it's like, you don't understand, like, there's nuggets of, of just truth and wisdom in everybody's story, and we all have a testimony. And the power that that the power that we have in our story when we share it, it's going to inspire and it's going to motivate other people. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's why God says it's like we have the blood of the Lamb and the word of our testimony. Those are the two things we have, and everybody has a testimony. Right. Yeah, and Jamie and I were talking before the podcast too of like this awesome stories we've got to hear from the other guests on the podcast, and like there's a lot of podcasts that will just teach something, teach how to, but. There's so many lessons that can be learned in the diversity of everybody's different stories. Like a lot of the, there's a lot of similarities, mm -hmm. um, but just to hear all those different stories and have a place where we can share that with other people has just been awesome. So what is, what would be your word of encouragement to somebody who's fearful of sharing their story? Yeah. I think something that was said to me when I was fearful of sharing my story, uh, even just when it started, I was afraid to to let my book be released because mm. it's a very personal and uh, I was very I was very fearful to do that. I was very fearful to share when I had breast implant illness. It took me six months to share that. Uh, and I often joke like, okay, Lord, why did you give me this topic to talk about? Why couldn't I talk in, about saving puppies or something? Yeah. But no, I have to talk about female anatomy. Like this is yeah. not comfortable. But I think that it's so important to push past those fears because because there's so much, um, so much good on the other side. And what someone told me was uh, two words, and they said, someone's waiting. There's someone waiting to hear your story. There's someone waiting to know that they're not alone. They're not the only one that's going through what you went through. There's someone waiting to know that there is light on the other side of this darkness. And there's someone waiting to know, how do I get there? So if by sharing your story, can do that for someone, even if it's one person. That's all that matters. Mm. So I would just say just that. Don't be afraid to share your story. Uh, obviously, there's levels of, um, 
I guess, tact when it comes to sure. sharing your story. And yeah. I think you just have to be uh, very clear and on that and what that looks like. Yeah. But uh, gosh, if, if you've been giving some, given something to share, do it. It's the one thing that someone can never refute. You know, people can always argue about political topics or things like that, but no one can argue about your story because yeah. it's yours. It's yours, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And we talked, I remember when we had Spencer on, he talked about like, why do I have to have this addiction? Why can't I have that addiction? And why I think mine's the worst and the alcoholic thinks his is the worst and the drug addict thinks his is like everybody thinks it's the, yours is the worst, but um, the reality is you just got to have to share it. So mm -hmm. it, is there a line between being like too vulnerable to people? Um, like you said, there's tact and sharing. Is there a line between just being very wishy-washy and sharing absolutely everything and really thinking through and how you want to articulate your story? Absolutely. You know, I, there's one thing I always tell my, my girls, my two daughters, I always say, keep it classy. Yeah. <laughs> 100%. Keep it classy. If that's how you're talking, what you're wearing, whatever it is, keep it classy. Yeah. And I think the same thing goes for sharing your story. I mean, yes, there's a lot, it can be a lot of vulnerability with that. Uh, but you really do have to think through it and be really intentional on what you share, how you share it, what your audience is, who your audience is, I should say. And, you know, obviously there's certain things you can maybe share with one other, with one person that you maybe wouldn't with another. Uh, but you just have to use that discernment. And, you know, I, I do that all the time. If I know that I'm going to be talking to someone or speaking to an audience, I just lay it before the Lord. Lord, what do you want me to say? What do these people need to hear? How deep do I need to go? And uh, just get that clarity before you start, you know, you just don't want to word vomit your yeah. everything out there because that's not effective either, yeah. right? And I think um, it's, it's just really... Uh, really important to um, just to know exactly, uh, you know, like I said, kind of just who your audience, really who your audience is um, and where the biggest impact is going to be. Because no one says that you have to share all your stuff. Mm -hmm. You know, mm -hmm. you don't have to share all your all your secrets, all, all the things. Um, but what is it about your story that is impactful, that you feel really will help someone and then keep it classy? Yeah. That's really good. Anything else you got, Keegan? No, I would say, yeah, just last question would just be, not the last, I got two, I guess. But <laughs> but with sharing your story and writing this book, where do you, wh how do you want to continue to, to, to grow that or to use that, right? Like, I, I assume it's not just, well, I wrote a book and then I'm done doing it. Mm -hmm. So so where do you see yourself two, three years? How, how do you go forward with sharing stories and using that uh, right. more? Right. Well, what I've really seen, especially with this, I guess, second chapter of uh, my health journey with um, the explant, and is really this focus on the importance of having a healthy body image. And I think so many women and men struggle with negative body image. And I really feel like there's an opportunity to share my story in a broader sense, mm -hmm. uh, not just breast cancer, because uh, that is very niche, mm -hmm. uh, but in a broader sense, um, with with the the topic of body image and being able to love yourself uh, for who you are, not what you are, and uh, and what does that look like, and how do you do that? Um, being someone who, you know, technically by the world's standards, is deformed as a woman. So how do I do that? And how can I um, 
impart that wisdom and things that I have learned to uh, women and men that may be struggling with the same thing. Because I think it's a huge issue right now, especially with younger generations, college generation. I mean, it's, I hear it all the time that people are really struggling with that. For sure. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And the more social media grows, the more we're hearing about it. Absolutely. Yeah. It's, it's a big, it's a big issue. And like you said, with social media, there's just so many women are seeing these things on, on TikTok and all these influencers and on Instagram and saying, oh, I have to look like that to be accepted, to be attractive. Um, And that's not the case. That's obviously not true, but that's what we're being shown and taught. Um, And so really helping women focus on really knowing who they are and their identity and who they are. And because that will show you really what your purpose is. Um, and there's less focus then on, on the external because yeah. that's always changing. Yeah. Always. I, I love that. And and we've talked about it on other episodes, but look, we're, I'm getting older every single day, every day. Like we're, we're supposed to age and get older. Um, but social media, I, I think even beyond the comparison, it's, it's this flood of just over and over and over. You hear the word beauty and then you see it attached to image. It's always external, external, external. Sure. So then we just, in our mind, that's what's beautiful. And it's like, literally not like it's it, it really is like are you like be- like is your heart beautiful is your com- like are you compassionate are you caring are you empathetic like that is what beauty is mm-hmm. the, the same way i would talk about just like worldly possessions they're wasting away right. like if, if if my beauty is defined on my externals it's wasting away like who like you said who am i that's that's beauty um so yeah, I, I, I think topic yeah. i think society in general is kind of taking that statement too and changed it where like it doesn't matter what you look like and you don't have to take care of your body Mm -hmm. because I don't think that's what you're referring to that it's okay to be overweight to not take care of your body and be like because I think our society has almost shared that message Mm -hmm. um and I I don't think that does a service for people who don't have a choice over like there's some things you don't have a choice over the way you that you look and you're almost being disrespectful to people that don't have that choice when you're not taking care of your body um, and doing the things that are in your control, uh, but not finding your identity in how you look. I'd love to have a six pack, but that's... I do. <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean? So yes. um, yeah. awesome. Well, th- thanks for being here, Jamie. If there's like one word of encouragement to our listeners that you want to leave them with, what would that be? I would say, uh, like I said earlier, someone's waiting someone's waiting to hear your story and your story is so unique it's you no one has your story but you and it's so important just to get that out there and understand that you can be a light to somebody else it does you don't have to have a, a big platform to do it it can be your next door neighbor that just needs to know that you care and you understand what they're going through uh, so be uh, confident in the authority that you have in your own story and uh, give it out to the world because someone's waiting. Awesome. Thank you, Jamie. Yeah, thank you so much for coming. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Hey, everybody. Thank you so much for tuning in. We sincerely hope that you learned something today. And as always, we appreciate your support and hope you can all find a way this week to pay it forward.